future when this life's chapter is over. Thank you. Thank you, Leah. That was well, well said. Um, well, greetings. Good morning. It's great to be here. It's good to see a little Presbyterian movement, you know, earlier and a little rhythm. Thanks to James and everybody who's singing. It was good. So, um, why Jesus? Why Jesus? In our Lenten messages, we've been raising this question, question have we not? How has that question hit you? What meaning has it brought into your Lenten season? Last week, we looked at Jesus, the human being, vulnerable as we are. Today, we go further into the why Jesus question by entering into his experience of temptation in the wilderness. Why Jesus? Because he knew the human experience of temptation as we do, and probably in many ways, beyond what we do. And yet he offers us an example and his spirit to walk with him to the cross. Because what we will see today is the temptation is actually a preparation for that which is to come. Every hero or heroine has their moment of crisis and test. Pick whoever it is. We can go to the Bible and think of Moses, we can think of Esther, we can think of others. We can think of that incredibly powerful myth that continues to hold its magnetism over our imagination, the Odyssey and Odysseus, and so many that are built around that, because every hero or heroine has their moment when they are tested to see with what they will do, with what they've been given. In order to look at this passage today, I invite us to a place of receptivity, to hear the scriptures, and to do so, I want to just say a short prayer for us. Lord, illumine us with your word, the word by which we live, which is the bread of life. Amen. Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13 is the text. Um, if it, it's up on the screen, you can read it up there. Or I invite you also to do something that some of you are doing in your community groups. Just close your eyes and listen. Just listen and put yourself into the scene. And what would it be like to be there with Jesus while this is going on? Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing at all during those days, and when they were over, he was famished. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. Jesus answered him, It is written, One does not live by bread alone. Then the devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, to you I will give their glory and all this authority, for it has been given over to me, and I give it to anyone I please. 
if you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to protect you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had finished every test, he departed from him until an opportune time. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Here's some questions that I came up with this week as I was preparing. I think they're important in order to get a, an orientation with this passage. Why does the Spirit lead Jesus into the wilderness after his baptism? Why does he not directly lead him into a ministry of teaching and healing? It was interesting, I was looking at a bookstore, I think it was Barnes & Noble, and I was looking at the National Geographic, you know they have those kind of like Christian editions where they talk about Jesus or whatever, and the guy, who, the individual who wrote the guy, he was a guy, the guy who wrote the, the article for the whole thing was going through all the key moments of Jesus' life. So I'm looking through, of course, I'm, I'm preparing a sermon on temptation, right? So why not look at that? So I'm looking at this and I'm like, where's the temptation? He left it out. What kind of guy are you? <laughs> like, where was it? But that made, it reinforced this question, why does the Spirit lead him into the wilderness before sending him into ministry? Why? Why the temptation? Is it to prove his lordship and his divine status? Or is it the very thing that he refuses to do in the temptation? I'm not saying he doesn't have the divine status. It's a question of, is he refusing to do on command what he is by nature? And he's refusing to do it for a reason. Third question was, does Jesus in one, it does Jesus in one of the most definitive tests of his life choose the vulnerability of humanity over his divinity, meaning he chooses the vulnerability of being tempted than the invincibility of winning the temptation. Think about that. When you think about the way of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus. So why the wilderness? John baptizes Jesus in the Jordan River. Jesus is blessed as God's beloved son as the spirit descends upon him. Now he's being led by the spirit into the wilderness. Why must this encounter with Satan happen before his public ministry begins? Perhaps it is because he must first identify with his people Israel and their own desert experience of 40 years in order to be able to speak into the frailty and vulnerability of his people that have lived with this burden of being chosen. However my imagination or yours engages this post-baptismal moment of Jesus, one thing is clear. He is tested to the core of his humanity to define whether his ministry will be based on truth or deception. 
What happens in a 40-day fast? I don't know, I'll, I could ask the question if any of you did. I had, a, I had a professor in college who did. He didn't tell anybody what he was doing until about two weeks in, we all knew something was going on with his body. He thinned out. He kind of looked, he looked weary, basically. We're like, what are you doing? So finally, he opened up and he said what he was doing, and he told us that he decided to go on a 40-day fast. And he said at some point, it was so extremely hard to deal with the hunger. But then there was a moment like the marathon runner busting through a wall, and he said, spiritually, I came to a place that I had never been before with such clarity and understanding about everything that was going on around him. And of course, he, he stopped, but then he talked, after when he finished, he talked about what it meant to come off the fast, but how starving you can be, and yet how you can actually break through a barrier. I think this is what was going on with Jesus. It says as his fast is ending, he was starving. And that 40-day fast was grueling both to his body and to his spirit. There are testimonies of people who have gone to the desert to seek God and have gone mad. But there are also stories of those who broke through to these incredible levels of spiritual insight and awareness. It is helpful to see what Jesus is facing before he goes into his public ministry. He was starving, and the devil came to him. Was he facing an illusion, or was he facing something that was deeply real? The devil in the Greek here is diablos. Diablos can have other names, the falsifier, the subverter, the divider. Each one, each name expresses a particular aim or intention of this subversive presence and this seductive voice. And the devil, the deceiver, true to character, arrives in the form of what is good. Scripture. Good things. A beneficial angel of light. And might it be, I've often wondered, that the images of a dark, evil presence with a tail and horns and teeth is so ingrained in us that we forget this, that the voice comes to us in light and often with scripture. Beware. First scene, stones and bread. In the first scene, the deceiver makes an offer that is hard to refuse to a man that's ending a 40-day fast. Jesus, you're hungry. Don't you feel it? Yes, you do. Look, you have a problem with a simple solution, with your son of God power. How can <clears throat> you can turn any, to any one of these stones and turn them into bread? Why don't you? How easy it would be for you to do so. Go test the power out. Use it. Then you will really know that you are God's son, validated, no longer vulnerable, right? Begin to taste that messianic power that can save the world. I know, it's just bread, Jesus, but how much bread you will be able to share with the hungry and how the crowds will love you. Jesus does not engage the voice in any kind of dialogue or discussion. It is a safe bet that Jesus had been meditating on the book of Deuteronomy while on his fast. It is not surprising that the words of Deuteronomy 8, 3, one does not live by bread alone, are on his lips and in his heart. But notice that Jesus does not identify himself here with being the son of God as Satan brings that title to him. He doesn't. 
Rather, he affirms his own humanity by identifying with those that need bread and who need more than bread. Second scene. I call this the king of kings scene. The second test is the temptation to possess ultimate power over all things, kingdoms and peoples. The deceiver paints this wide-angle picture where Jesus has the power over all people. Here the temptation is not to be just a king, but the king of kings. But with one crucial condition. The public rule, Jesus, that you will have will be sponsored by the hidden power of mine. So it's based on deception. Don't worry, Jesus, it's all yours. Bow down, worship, serve me behind the curtain. Serve me behind the curtain. I will give it all to you, just as it is mine. Oh, just remember that you have it all through me. It's hard to tell what's going on here. How do you know in such a vulnerable condition whether it's Satan or the Spirit? As I mentioned, there are stories of men and women who went to the desert to find God and how much the desert can distort your perception and desire for everything. But there is a valuable testimony to the desert, clarifying our perception and purifying our desire. A desert discernment, clarity to see through the deceptiveness of Satan's illusory dream. Jesus abruptly and directly challenges the deceiver's claim to authority. There is one greater to be worshiped, O voice of the darkness, the deceiver. But again, there's no dialogue with the devil about hierarchies or political debates over church and state. Jesus simply states in words that come from the lips of any ordinary human being, worship the Lord your God, and that one only. Third scene, temple in Jerusalem. Thus far, the diabolic voice has tested Jesus through hunger for bread, has tested Jesus to offer his service to the powerful God of this world. I don't doubt that Satan is serious about the power that he has. The knowledge that there is a ruling power system of deceptive principles run by one deceiver is attested in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. So there is, there is this presence and this power in the world. Now the deceiver ups the ante takes into the temple, the holiest place for Jesus' people in his time. Satan challenges him, throw yourself down from the pinnacle. Show the crowd below who's worshiping in the courtyard, who you are, how much God will save you. Don't you know Psalm 91? It tells you, you will be saved. Trust God, trust God, do it. Do you think that this moment helped him deal with being mocked when he was on the cross? And others looked at him and said, he saved others, but he could not save himself? For Jesus, it's no deal. A true Messiah would not, a true Messiah would, would not hold on to and promote the godness of themselves. Jesus chooses not to set aside his vulnerability and deal with the devil, learning and working with his power for invincibility and praise, to gain praise from other vulnerable humans who want him to be more than human, as oftentimes we do. But note again, Jesus does not argue or debate. He is firm. No. Saying no without qualification, without defense, in vulnerable power situations, 
is incredible freedom to simply say, no, I will not do that. I've been in that situation, you may have as well, where something comes over you and you just say, no, I will not do that. But it's preceded by a certain kind of clarity, right? So where do we go with this? Well, I don't think we really go anywhere with it because you have to let it sit with you. But at this point, we could do no better than take Henry Nouwen's insights from his little book, In the Name of Jesus. Using Jesus' temptation in the desert, he outlines three temptations that followers of Jesus need to be aware of and resist. The temptation to be relevant, the temptation to power, and the temptation to be spectacular. Each of which he says, Christians, the church, and the leaders of the church are often tempted to do and must resist through prayer, through reflection, and surprisingly this, which I think is going to be very important with what I say in a few moments, accepting our own human vulnerability and building healthy relationships with those who are vulnerable. If you take three, Jesus' three tests as one, as I reflected on it and meditated, something clarifying emerged. Something probably more radical than I thought that would show up, but found out that it explains much of what we are going to see as we learn about Jesus as his ministry under, uh, unfolds in the Gospels. This test reveals one thing, and that is this. In his refusal, or I don't even call it a refusal, his walking away from the offers that he has given, he is turning away from relying upon all forms of power. And that's kind of hard to understand because our lives are lived in a power matrix, a system, ecclesiastical, spiritual, political, economic, technological. I mean, add what it is to the word power, you can find all of those predicates, right? And you can wrap them up into one that there's always been a system that has been at work. It's something that, you, that, is, that we're, we continue to speak many times when we talk about the gospel of how it is that this, these systems and things live almost on their own sometimes. And we don't know where we're complicit with it when we're not. Jesus cuts like, like a sword, cuts through it. He's not going to choose it. Why doesn't he have a place to lay his head? He's, he's living out in the open. He's vulnerable. What kind of power is he trusting at this point, right? So he's traveling in his ministry from this point in a way that's counter to the flow of all of the religious, all the spiritual, political, intellectual, and power sources of his day. Each part of that, as we know, these systems that we live in, they have punishments and rewards. They have honors and shame, right? Who's in, who's out, who's worthy, who's not? And all of Jesus is saying, I don't want to fall down here, no. How would you live? And I think this is the tension that brings this passage to us, right? Because we live in this, these systems of power, but we seek through Jesus not to be of them or serve them, and yet we must still live within them. 
There's a whole series of sermons to go with that, which you won't get this morning, obviously, because I'm already behind time. But I'm almost done. This does run counter to the way we normally think. I often think that book titles oftentimes are a way into looking into the culture, right? The titles themselves, because they have to advertise them. So what is most appealing is going to show up in a book title. So I went through, went to Amazon and hit Amazon and said, the power of, to see how many titles came up. There are a lot of them. The power of now has sold two million copies. The Power of Habit has sold two million copies. The Power of Positive Thinking, which has been around even before Tom, right? <laughs> you were a little, you're a little guy when that was written, right? <laughs> the Power of Positive Thinking, 15 million copies and growing. Here's an interesting one. Stormy Omardian, which you probably, some of you have read her books, right? She has this whole series on the power of prayer for your husband, power of praying wife, all of those kind of things. All of those total together, 37 million copies. And probably one I think of the most sinister books, that's my view, The 48 Laws of Power. New York Times bestseller. You'll see it right up on the counter at Barnes & Noble when you walk in there. 1.5 million. The latter book is billed as the ultimate book on power to resist ultimate power by taking it for oneself. I'm not saying that these books are bad. I'm just laying it out there. We live and breathe this. We need to acknowledge that. Jesus' temptation highlights it and gives us direction to leave and move beyond it. At the beginning, I said, why Jesus? Because he was tested by temptation. And he offers us his example as we walk with him to the cross. It does say in the book of Hebrews that he is the one who sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. One to whom we can go to find mercy when we are tempted. Those who are truly powerless, who have no say or stake in the matrix of power, are more likely to get Jesus than those who are deeply engaged in the power matrix, even for the purpose of doing divine good. That's scary to me. I'm in the power matrix as a pastor. This is a temptation. I need to listen to Jesus. I need to watch him. I need to listen to him closely. But maybe even more so, I need to be with the people who are more apt to get him than I am. Because as hard as it may appear to my eyes, the least of these are always closer to Christ in their vulnerability than I am with what I have. Lent is a time to reflect upon our own ashes-to-ashes -ashes life, our hunger to receive living bread from Jesus and our tested, tempted life. To receive means to be receptive. The hidden temptation, I think, here is to try to do something with this passage which is an evidence of our desire to have power over the scriptures, rather than letting the scriptures question us. We need to step outside of our need for power. Sit with this passage, listen with it. Let it, let us come to let it come to rest in our sense of vulnerability, in our sense of powerlessness. In the scripture, the wilderness is the place often where we can find a door of hope. 
the passage that Michelle read as the, as the, uh, for our assurance, is that truth is also reflected in the one I chose to end this sermon, which is from the book of Hosea. Think of yourself, my dear brother and sister, sibling in Christ. Think of yourself with this invitation this morning. Therefore, I will now persuade her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. From there, I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Acre a door of hope. There she shall respond as in the days of her youth, as in the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. May it be so, and may God be sufficient for us and our vulnerability and the temptation which we often face to build our lives and the kingdom of God on false premises. Amen.